0: Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis, and this week we take you back to a previous episode with Seth Godin, where we talk about what it means to jump uh, from his perspective, having done so several different times in his career, and obviously what that looks like for for all of us, and what guidance he can share as we think about our own jumps, uh, how to face failure and deal with it in a very real way, how to uh, pick ourselves up and move forward and and why, you know, maybe the unexpected elements of jumps are actually uh, not a bad thing to uh, to embrace. So, I'm going to take you back there. A wonderful, uh, one of our greatest hits episodes with Seth and, uh, and here it is.
1: Seth Godin, thank you so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast. It is truly a pleasure to have you on.
2: Well, thanks for doing this. I know it's a lot of work.
1: <laughs> well, uh, you are probably the master of Doing a lot of work all at the same time and doing it well. Uh, what I'd love to start with is your own story. Uh, you've made a few jumps in your career and your life. Can we can we go way back to to where you were when you decided what you were going to do with your life? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to do it a little bit. I I'm
2: I'm frequently frustrated by the sort of feeling that some people have something that we don't have, and that if we could just replicate their origin. We'd be fine. And what I've discovered from studying a lot of people over the last 35 years is that the only thing successful people have in common is they're successful, and perhaps that they've failed a lot. If you want to draw a, a straight line between somebody who's built a company, somebody who's built a movement, somebody who has made a difference, there's not a lot in common. So I'm happy to talk about me because everyone's interested in themselves, but I'm not sure it's replicatable.
1: <laughs> well, maybe then we'll switch it to, to what you do see as, as maybe a through line through all the different people you've worked with. And, and you said it's really just that they're successful. Does that mean everything else is varied? Well, pretty much.
2: I mean, you know, one thing that, they, that people have in common who have made it is they don't hesitate to talk about the failures. And in many cases, they're still nursing the feelings they have from those failures. Uh, And that in none of the cases did those failures translate to, I am a failure. Instead, it was, a failure happened to me. I was present when failure occurred, not, I am a failure. And when you look at the things that occur to you, and you feel cornered, or you feel unjustly accused, or you feel like you're out of resources, or that people have let you down, or that you got an unlucky break, it's up to us to decide how to process that. And in my experience, it's not that the universe is sending you a message that you're never going to amount to anything, but in fact it's precisely the opposite, which is the universe is saying lots of people run into speed bumps, most of them quit. That people who don't quit are the ones who get through to the other side
1: Yeah, it reminds me of I call the the 10,000 unsexy steps you go through which we've, we've talked about a bit in our community And in my book of you know, that's that's that medium Icky middle ground you don't necessarily see and you know at the end of the race at the success story That's polished up and pushed out on social media things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean I used to back in the day there used to be male And the way mail worked is (laughs) somebody came to your house every day and brought you stuff. And the mail for me for five years was rejection letters. And I got to the point where I was conditioned to hate the mail because the mail just meant one more day when I didn't sell anything.
1: And what kept you
2: going forward? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I think I would have been completely justified in giving up. Uh, at business school, they certainly would have taught me that I would have been justified in giving up. But I had come to the conclusion that the only other alternative was to be a bank teller. And I could visualize how bad I would be (laughs) at being a bank teller and how painful it would be. And so in my head, I drew a picture of an alternative future that was even worse than the one I was living in.
1: (laughs) And why was bank teller that option? It just felt
2: to me like a job I could get um as a fairly unemployable human being you know I my best job my only job was at a software company in 83 with an amazing boss venture funded fast growing you don't find those every day so if I was going to think about what my backup job was it wasn't going to be an amazing experience like that it was going to be a place that hires people by the bushel and it seemed to me that with an MBA, I might be able to get a job as a bank teller.
1: <laughs> do you think it's silly then when people say they never confronted failure or hardship in doing what they love? Well, the doing what you love thing is another uh,
2: point for me, which is I don't think most people who are successful do what they love. I think most people who are successful love what they do. And yep. those are two totally different things.
1: I uh those who listen to this podcast know I I started I've I've graduated from the from literally um, my uh, walk-in closet but I used to record this in my closet and it was always so funny when people would be like ah I'd love to get to do that and I'd say really do you love sitting in a closet with the lights off and and people think you're trapped inside and you're actually recording something that might get you know put on air someday I mean you're right there's a certain reality that I think you have to you have to enjoy that that practice
2: and why not I mean you know the the thing is that I won the birthday lottery. I was born to the right parents of the right gender and the right race in the right year in the right town, and then I get to choose a career and I don't have to shovel coal in a coal mine and I don't have to dig latrines in the army so anything above that is a choice, and if you want to, you can tell yourself the story that it's a choice you made voluntarily and you can choose. To make it your passion. The people who would argue that real success lies in following your passion, I'm not sure I buy that. Because the kinds of folks, for example, who end up in the music industry because they love music, if you're in the music industry, you're not making music. You're hauling boxes or doing contracts or making sales calls. That's not music. That's the music industry. So I'm not sure that we're born... With a set of DNA that points us to that one and only one thing we can be passionate about, and that's all we're able to do with love in our heart. I,
1: I think, um, and this maybe is a broader and longer discussion, but I think sometimes we're poisoned by by social media and pop culture in a way that 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 tells you, you know, you're either a God-given talent to do this, or you can be happy if you do that, and it just doesn't seem like that's that that's how life works and that's how our lives are constructed.
2: And it's airbrushed that all you see in social media is the most made up, uh, smoothed over, glossiest version of anybody's life. And even the people who are living that life feel like frauds because their life doesn't match their Instagram pictures. Do
1: you think we were better off without that stuff?
2: You know, better off is a really fascinating term. It feels to me like if any of us got beamed back to 1974 driving a Chevy Nova uh, working our way through a world of uh, ill-fitting shoes and record stores that didn't have what we wanted and a world that was you know an inch away from nuclear war I'm not sure most people would trade for that Uh, so we get what we get and I think if you and I were king of the world we'd fix social media a bit but we're not my My best take on social media is we're not uh, the customer, we're the product. And as you can go in it knowing that you are being manipulated and pushed through behavioral economics to act a certain way so that a company can make more money by selling your attention, it gets a lot easier to deal with it.
1: Yep, that makes sense to me. You talk a lot about storytelling and in marketing, obviously, creating a story that... um, makes people miss it if they don't have it. And there's a line you gave in your blog, which I, I highly recommend uh, folks listening to this, this episode and conversation check out off, off of Seth's website. you said in October of 2016, and I actually, I saved this. My friend Frank sent it to me, and we were talking about it, and you said, instead of creating a campaign that somehow cuts and invades, consider creating a product, a service, and a story that we'd miss if we couldn't find it. How important is it to solve a problem in that, not backwards first, but, but understanding what the pain is you're gonna solve, understanding where the need is before you solve it, rather than just making something? Because that's what stuck with me from that quote.
2: Yeah, I've been spending a lot of time working on this very issue, so the way I think about it is this. It's very compelling to see a marketer with a line out the door to see somebody who has a product that sells itself to watch somebody build a brand that someone's willing to have tattooed on themselves and we say to ourselves wow i wonder how they did that and the answer is they made something tattoo worthy not the other way around that this the decisions you make the first 10 minutes that you launch are things you're going to pay for forever and I think it makes way more sense to decide to build something people covet as opposed to building something you have to hustle all the time.
1: In, in your own experience and in what you do, I mean, you, you do a lot of different things. You have an Alt-MBA program, you have uh, books, you have different programs you lead. Is that how you evolved your, I hate to say platform because that's a cliche use of the word, but your practice and, and your identity and what you offer people? Was it just listening? Is that, is that the step that, that became first? Uh, I think the, f-
2: the first step is the word voluntary. I can't make anybody engage with me. And if I'm lucky, people will voluntarily seek me out, will voluntarily raise their hand, will voluntarily read for free, will voluntarily ask for more, will voluntarily take the marketing seminar, etc. And because I'm in, dealing with an all-volunteer force, my posture is different. I can't bring hubris to the table. I have to bring humility to the table. I have to say, how can I be of service? And I believe that if we can be more of service, then the line starts out the door, because that's what people really want. They don't want to help anybody make their quarterly numbers. No one does. They want to help solve their own problems.
1: That's a, it reminds me of a question we had on the podcast a few weeks ago from a gentleman in L.A. who talked about, you know, what do you do when you want to jump but you don't know what to jump towards? And I think that's a really a well-articulated answer of, of thinking not necessarily as the ego but rather as how can I be of service to others and seeing where that, where that trail takes you.
2: Yeah, if the worst that'll happen is you'll end up being of service to others. That's not a bad outcome.
1: (laughs) Yeah yeah and and what's neat? I mean, maybe this is just in my experience, but when I was sitting in my you know cubicle up on the thirty ninth floor of the Hancock Tower in Boston, I sketched a cover page to a book, but but the idea was actually something more broad of a community to come together to share ideas that I thought would help other people take risks, starting with myself. Um I wouldn't say it was, you know, what what when to jump is today, by any means, but it was a thread of saying, You know, maybe I'm not the only one that wants to do something different and I I uh, I think in some of the work you've done That's certainly that thread of service comes through of saying I'm not doing this to to hear myself speak Which again in this world of social media echo chambers, it can be pretty easy to prop yourself up to hear yourself speak Oh, it's super easy
2: and you know, if you look at your Wikipedia page, you'll go blind We've created all these metrics and these numbers and how many hits and how many reviews and how many this and how many that. I don't read my reviews. And I don't read my reviews because I'm never going to write that book again anyway. So what am I going to learn? But I know that if I want to bum myself out, I can go read my reviews. Because what they are is a chronicle of people for whom my work wasn't aimed. right? And if you don't like it, I get it. It's not for you. But it might be for somebody. And that posture is really different than looking in the rearview mirror and saying, I have to please everybody. You don't have to please everybody. You just have to please someone.
1: Right. And that's a, a lot less overwhelming in terms of where you start of producing a, something physical or delivering a service of, of finding that one, right? Rather than that massive well, billion I, dollar I, audience. I hate to disagree, but I think it is
2: overwhelming or at least whelming. Uh, and the reason is because now you're responsible. If, if right. you put something into the world for everyone and it doesn't work, well, you get to shrug your shoulders and say the, no- the world is too noisy. But if you say, I know exactly who this is for, right? This is for people who are in this situation in their life, who are frustrated with this, who want this, who listen to this, who believe in that, and you put it in the world for them and it doesn't work, now you're really on the hook. And so I think most people would rather imagine the great unwashed than the meaningful specifics.
1: Yeah. So st- staying on this topic of kind of thinking of groups, think of the individual, uh, When you, w- maybe this is the other way to look at it, but when you're thinking of making change, um, you said this is bring up another post of yours from, it was about a year ago this time, or, or winter of 2017, so a little bit longer you talked about where the real impact happens. This is when you decide to, you know, whether it's to be of service or, or deliver something, you, you, you say, quote, finding a cohort of people who want to change together. Is that, is that a key ingredient for success in, in doing that, that next thing?
2: Yes. And the reason is because we can no longer afford to talk to the masses that it used to be you could buy TV ads or uh, radio ads or magazine ads at a reasonable price to reach the people you wanted to reach. But now there's so much noise and so much clutter that while typical advertising online is really cheap, it's also really ineffective. And so unless you're selling the flat belly diet, it's super difficult to yell at individuals. What you can do is organize a cohort. Organized groups of people who want to tell other people because they want to be part of something. And the poster child here, obviously, is the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead (laughs) figured figured this out long before anybody else. Uh, And the Grateful Dead only had one top 40 hit their entire career. They were almost never played on the radio. And as a result, they were one of the 10 most successful touring bands of all time. And they grossed over half a billion dollars.
1: <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know the, the, the contrast there and what their hits placed as and where they came in in revenue. That's unbelievable. And you attribute that to knowing who your audience is, knowing what your, your cohort? See, it wasn't knowing. It was
2: them saying, there are probably people like us. Let's have a party. And if we look at their numbers in 1972, which many people think of as their best year, Their average concert only had 5,000 people at it. But what they were doing was throwing a party. Throwing a party for people who wanted to be part of it. And then the word spread and the word spread and the word spread. And the only way to be part of the party was to come to the party. (laughs) And that's the way we can think about our work. So when I think about your podcast and your work and what you're building, you're not trying to get every person on the street to come on in. It's just for people who want to be in the party.
1: Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Jimmy Buffett and his success. He obviously had bigger crowds over time, it sounds like, just in population. But but what people bought into was a certain type of party with Margaritaville that has just been astounding to watch as well. That's right.
2: Yeah, I would use him as an example, but I don't like his music as much as Jerry's.
1: (laughs) Where do you spend most of your time now? When you when you get to read for pleasure and you get to think on on challenges and topics that interest you, where where does that kind of bring you? Where, where do you find your mind going to? Um,
2: I spend a lot of time working with charities I care about. I just added it up. I think uh, all in, they've raised seven hundred and fifty million dollars over the last few years. Um, I like to read. Uh, junkie science fiction and listen to jazz, uh, but mostly this is such a privilege. I spend most of my waking hours thinking about how can I tell these stories in ways that people will be able to hear them.
1: When you tell a story, obviously the focus is how you tell the story and and telling it the way that is appropriate and that that puts it out the way you'd like, but does how long that story lasts for, how long people remember it for, its its own longevity. Right. Does that have any? Do you take any consideration into that? Well, you know, I'm still telling
2: stories on stage that I started working on in 1996. Wow. And but I'm also adding new stuff all the time. And the way I view it is, you know, there's this cake at a bakery in New York City called the Lady M Cake, and it looks like it's 1,000 layers thick. Each layer is just a crepe. And um, the magic of the Lady M cake is you can't count how many layers there are because there are so many. And this idea of seismology and striations layer by layer, that's my work. You know, it's possible that someone will write more blog posts day after day in a row than I will, but it's going to take them a long time because I haven't stopped yet. And (laughs) so... There isn't one of my 7,200 posts that have won the internet. I've never written a post that was the hit of the day. Never won. And I'm proud of that, because then day after day after day, they add up and they make an impact on people.
1: You get to interact with so many different people, and there are people that also want a sense of agency over their life and want to make change. Do you find yourself giving the same type of advice to them? is it change over the years or or by the person or group you're speaking with?
2: Oh, it definitely changes based on the narrative and the worldview of people, but my shtick hasn't changed in 30 years. I mean, I was really, really wrong about the World Wide Web. I, that was the most expensive mistake I ever made. I didn't think it was going to work. I thought it was like prodigy, but with... Uh, but. It, didn't have a business model it was, I was wrong but ever since then I've sort of had this view of the universe and something will come along that challenges that view so I'll refine it and try to think about what could explain what happened and then I'll become more nuanced but uh, what we look for is predictive power that every time an apple falls off a tree sooner or later it hits the ground Newton was right and sometimes it takes longer than other times, but that ex- you can explain that with hurricanes. Uh, but the apple always hits the ground. So gravity is a really useful way to understand how the world works. And I think that these ideas of permission and remarkability, the ideas of tribes and cohorts, the ideas of uh, making change that people want to see, the kinds of stuff we teach in the Alt-MBA about being a linchpin and leveling up and using your lever to make things better. These things are holding up. They're real. And um, I'm proud that I don't have to wonder who's in the audience before I talk, because I think it all makes sense no matter who it is.
1: I want to go to Another blog post of yours, and I apologize to pull these out of uh, the, the bin of, of posts, but I guess that's what you have to expect will happen when you write sure. every day. Um, you know, this was one from August of 2017. So uh, just this past summer, and it was subject titled, Preparing, and then in, in parentheses, uh, the, For the Test of Time and i won't read it all but the first line says we have a word for the fruitless search for perfect perfectionism and we have a word for what we do when we dumb something down to get approval the committee and then there's a, a, a bit more and and i want to um i want to stop there for a second it, 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 this reminded me of something that came out in my book with a woman who is a single mother i've i've spoke about her before uh, laura McCallan. she left marketing uh, as an executive to to become a writer and a blogger and a podcast host and um, has a a young daughter she talks about this this sort of committee she had made up of her family her ex-husband etc and she talks about the difference between asking for their permission versus asking for their support and how if you if you only looked for you know permission from the committee, you might never get it. She looked for support, and that enabled her to, to be able to jump. Um, do you find that that a lot of people in the committees they form, when we look for approval, look for permission more often than support?
2: Of course. And the reason is because it's not actually permission. It's responsibility. That if your committee says, go ahead then it's easy for you to come to the conclusion that they are now responsible because they told you to do it. And it's really hard to get a committee to take responsibility. It's super productive if you wish to leap to begin by acknowledging that you're going to take responsibility and reminding yourself all day, every day, that the one thing that's easy to take is responsibility and you should go do that.
1: And that is that is where you ended up on the on the post, as you said, it, it might be worth the effort to confront the status quo, to own it, to leap. I think that accountability piece is so important, right? at least right now, in being able to say, this is what I'm doing, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, the post, the title of the post says, The Test of
2: Time. And most people, when they use the phrase, The Test of Time, don't think of it as a test. But that's what it says, The Test of Time. <laughs> and it is a test and the question is how are you going to pass the test how are you going to ace the test and you're going to ace the test by taking responsibility
1: and in that in that post you 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 made a really good point you know some people are make haste to treat things as disposable to call it a temporary fix when you when you put out effort into something and you said you said this but maybe this next thing we're going to do maybe it will last Maybe it will be like that novel from 60 years ago or the record album from 1962 or even the Flatiron building a hundred years later still around is Every new project you take on every new leap you make is that how you you have to kind of Consider what you're doing is that it could still last well only if I'm doing my best work. I mean
2: I was at a museum the other day and uh, in the men's room they had a garbage can with one of those hinged tops but uh, the hinge was really poorly designed and so the floor was littered with paper towels and every single day someone goes into that men's room and has to clean up the mess and every single day that person doesn't fix the problem and I think the reason is because that person is saying well It's just one more day. It's not worth the hassle of taking responsibility to make this better. Well, if you're willing to leave that there, what aren't you willing to leave? And if we're going to organize a life, it would seem to me that we need to try to avoid the short fixes and invest the extra minute to do something gutsy instead.
1: That's a, that's a powerful anecdote. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I want to wrap up with a question that's that's somewhat related to that. When you think about building things to last, uh, I, I started my book in saying, you know, talking about a, a quote I had on the wall um, in my office for years. It was from Jeff Bezos giving a commencement address, address at Princeton in 2010. Um, and at the very end, he kind of says, when you're 80 years old, and you've built yourself uh, a life and you look back on it uh, in some quiet moment of reflection on an idle Tuesday afternoon, You know, what stories will you be most proud of that you've made for yourself? As someone who is so remarkably invested and entrenched in this, in this concept of telling powerful stories and helping others tell powerful stories, I'd love to hear from you. What will you be most proud of on that Idol Tuesday when you look back, if I may ask that?
2: Well, so far, what it seems to me is that it's what people who have learned from me have taught others. So you and I have never met in person that I can recall. But you've been toiling away at this book, at this podcast, at this work for a long time. And it means the world to me that my blog posts have resonated with you. Which means that the people you're teaching, at some level, I maybe had a little to do with. And if I can set aside my ego and help people teach other people, that's what I'd like to be known for.
1: It's like what my friend uh, Merle describes as like a, a ripple. you ripple yep. to me and my ripple to somebody else. Exactly. Well, Seth, uh, thank you for joining us. For folks listening who don't know Seth Godin, I I highly recommend you check out his posts, join his newsletter, sethgodin.com. Is there anything else they should know or where they can head to to learn more, Seth?
2: Uh, Best places to visit are altmba.com and maybe themarketingseminar.com. But if you go to sethgodin.com, there's all the buttons you'll ever need for the rest of your life. (laughs)
1: <laughs> thank you very much for joining me on the when to jump podcast and i i look forward to uh following up more on on each of the different things you do going forward fantastic
0: thanks that will do it for the when to jump podcast i hope you enjoyed that uh flashback episode with seth godin what a smart guy and so much wisdom to share in, in such a humble way you know where to find when to jump when to jump.com. Send us your stories and ideas and thoughts dot com and at whentojump across social media. My name is Mike Lewis, and I will see you next week.